This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Tell Me About a Complicated Man edition. It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2017. On today's show, Murder on the Orient Express stars Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot, the Belgian detective created by Agatha Christie. Branagh also directed this sumptuous costume drama. And then rumors have followed the comedian Louis C.K. for years now. They are now confirmed as true. We discussed the revelations of maximum creepiness of sexual misconduct and abuse of power with Slate's own Willa Paskin. And then finally, a new translation of The Odyssey, of Homer's The Odyssey is getting raves for its uh, poetic sensitivity, its music, its originality, but for another reason as well. It's the first translation of Homer's epic into English by a woman. We speak with its translator, the classicist Emily Wilson. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, joining us remotely, the editor of Slate, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, guys. You're out in California, huh? Indeed. Indeed. Mm. You can hear uh, palm fronds and horns honking in the background. Uh, And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Can I just point out that we're in a room together and it's very exciting? I know. What a pleasure, but only to find Julia Turner missing. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm so sorry to be the one... I'm in the ghent of my mind. <laughs> uh, there are no palm fronds in the ghent of anyone's mind, Julia Turner. But uh, all right, well, let's dig in. Murder on the Orient Express is based on a novel by Agatha Christie. This subversion uh, is directed by Kenneth Branagh and stars him as Hercule Poirot, the Belgian genius detective of um, many quirks. This is a twist on the old manor house murder mystery. In this instance, a train becomes snowbound. A nasty and mobbed up American businessman is found stabbed to death in his sleeper and mystery ensues. The movie stars, here we go. You ready? Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, Johnny Depp, Judy Dench, Willem Dafoe, Leslie Odom Jr., Richard Widmark, Rudolph Nureyev, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Ha, ha, ha. Wait, Richard Widmark can't possibly be in it. You're... I know, it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I added names of people who couldn't be in it, including Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But when I saw Derek Jacobi, actually, I did have this thing of, wait, Derek Jacobi is still alive? And then I felt terrible for thinking that. Sorry, Derek Jacobi. I, I love it when a joke of mine lands. Okay, anyway, um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we listen to a clip? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to... Um, uh, it appears that our bad luck has worsened. That is... A passenger has died on the train. He was murdered. Good God. Murder here. Alas, madame. God rest his soul. As we are snowbound, I have elected to take the case and find for my friend, Monsieur Book, the criminal. And why you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world. I will speak to all of you in time for the moment. I must recommend that you remain in your compartments with the doors locked. I feel like a prisoner here. It is for your own safety. If there was a murder, then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us on the train now. Mm, Yes. All right. Well, Dana, there's a long history of uh, Agatha Christie adaptation. She's, by one estimate, she sold two billion 
books. That's a lot of units moved. So inevitably, she's going to find her way to the screen. What do you what do you think of this one? And can you place in the context of others that you've seen? I mean, I think I'm in a way the worst for this topic because unlike you and Julia, I don't have much of an Agatha Christie fandom in my past. I'm not even sure I've seen the uh, the, the 1970s Murder on the Orient Express with all of the super raft of superstars it had in it, except maybe bits of it on cable here and there. But I think you can hear from that clip exactly the sort of movie this is and whether or not you would be would, you would be up for such a thing. I mean, it's it's pretty weak tea. It's like very weak English tea. <laughs> but there are moments when weak tea can go down well, I mean, there's it's it's sort of pleasant to sit through in its old fashionedness. The the phrase that popped into my mind as I was watching it was, "This is just richly upholstered nonsense." <laughs> but there's something relaxing about a chair upholstered with nonsense when you're coming, especially from you know the chilly world of. Uh, you know, reading about horrible new sex allegations and disgusting shenanigans in Washington. I mean, there's something so old fashioned and creaky about this movie. It doesn't really take advantage of all the great actors that are in it, um, but it unspooled pleasantly enough. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I have to admit that I spent a lot of time thinking about the conventions that it was exploring rather than actually entering into the story. But um, but Kenneth Branagh was kind of endearing with his crazy mustache, which we have to talk about. We should actually devote the entire segment just to deconstructing <laughs> that mustache. Uh, what do you think, Julia? You, you're more of an Agatha Christie nut than me, so maybe you, you have further thoughts. Well, I was curious to see the movie, not because it got such extraordinary reviews, which it did not, but just because... Uh, Agatha Christie was a total staple of my, I don't know, tweens, my early reading years. I must have read all of them or at least, I don't know, upwards of 50 of them when I was about 10 years old. And, you know, we're living in the era of creating franchises. And I was curious to see how someone might try to modernize Agatha Christie and turn her intellectual property into a money bags for the modern era. And, and, the uh, manner in which Kenneth Branagh and co. have opted to do so is interestingly square. It's just so square. It's as square as square could be. I mean, it basically seems like something that could have played on Sunday nights on PBS, which is where the Hercule Poirot adaptation, I, I never watched them, but I think my parents did when I was a kid. Um, it was one of the reasons why Agatha Christie was still, had some social currency, I think, in the 80s and 90s. So I wondered if the character might be modernized, if the plots might be modernized, and instead, it's all uh, star-studded throwbackery. I mean, actually, the movie franchise that this reminds me of most is the, um, the like, Valentine's Day or, mm. you know, the holiday ones that have, like, a thousand stars in them, but each star only gets, like, 17 seconds of screen time. Right, mm-hmm. the Gary Marshall um, kind of holiday extravaganzas. Right, right. Yeah, or love actually. Like it's it's this incredibly enormous ensemble. The the movie concludes, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say, with the hint that perhaps Hercule Poirot will mm-hmm. be headed to the Nile next yeah, for Death for on the, the Nile, which is another Agatha Christie book. And I will say, as something of an Agatha Christie uh you know, semi completist, um if not someone who would necessarily make the case that her work is stands among the greats of literature. I've actually always thought that Murder on the Orient Express has one of the worst plots. Like, I know that it's one of her most famous titles, that the film adaptation uh, is one that got some renown and somewhat mystifyingly some Oscar nominations. But the things that actually make her books and plots satisfying 
are the underlying logic of the crimes and the ways in which her particular detectives are able to suss those motives out. I mean, it's, I guess, any murder mystery is about the sussing out of motive, but um, it tends to be a particular focus in her work rather than the mechanics of the murder or the thrill of the chase. It's all about psychological understanding. Um, And because she wrote so many books, she wrote books in all permutations. She wrote, I won't tell you which one, but she wrote a book where the protagonist is the murderer. She wrote a book where everybody gets murdered one by one. Uh, And, you know, in Murder on the Orient Express, one unusual bravura, uh, strange plot machination turns out to be the result. And it's completely implausible in every possible Mm. respect. And it sort of undercuts. I mean, Steve, I can hear you chortling at my (laughs) admiration for Agatha Christie. Um, Your contempt for her is coming through, even in your silence. But I sort of think Murder on the Orient Express is one of her worst books because it undercuts whatever psychological acuity she brought to the more run-of-the-mill murder mystery she typically did by imagining basically as a parlor trick, this completely unlikely and fecucta result. Mm-hmm. So right. it's not, to me, it's not, it, it's probably a great place to start in terms of marketing because um, it's such a well-known name and a fun idea to stuff all these celebrities into a teensy tiny railway car. But uh, in terms of actually bringing to life the particular joys of Agatha Christie, I don't think the film does much for that. Right. So, I mean, you, you, you the, the by some odd anomaly, right, Sidney Lumet directed the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express, and Albert Finney's really good in it. And I'll confess now that I read all of Agatha Christie right around then because I saw that movie in the theaters uh, and went to see it greedily because, you know, roughly fourth grade, I was a total Agatha Christie head. But I don't know that I was still an Agatha Christie head by the beginning of fifth grade, but— um, and I've never really returned to them since. But it it seems to me like the pleasures of this movie, and there were some, I thought, sort of genuine pleasures to it. Are, Michelle Pfeiffer is a pleasure. Yeah, she's sure. good. Yes, in the, she's so good. Yeah, no, she's good. But it's it's kind of the double anachronism of it, right? Like there's, so there's something, even though Agatha Christie wrote in the 20th century, someone pointed out quite astutely that some of her biggest books happened at moments of crisis in the 20th century. So during the Depression or on the verge of the Cold War or... And they're 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 Xanax in literary form. Essentially, they're, they're, they really attack modern anxiety by being essentially Victorian in their orientation. They tend to be kind of aristocratic manor house, closed universe stories in which the one sort of radically unsettling thing is the crime, which is mostly a fait accompli. They're not violent in any. I mean, th- th- there's no explicit violence or very little explicit violence, uh, if any, in Agatha Christie's. Uh, books and it's very much about the reordering and the and the restoration of kind of coziness and and order to this disrupted universe by someone using only their intellectual you know pure intellectual powers and uh, you know and in this instance it just happens to be a snowbound uh, train but then the second anachronism kind of pleasant anachronism is a real throwback what it reminded me of were the disaster movies of the 1970s where the business model was getting 10 stars that you couldn't possibly afford to put in the same movie unless they were doing 
much, much, much less cor- like correspondingly less work, like a tenth of the work they would do if they were actually starring in the movie. And so you could pay them less. And, you know, you do the towering inferno or the Poseidon adventure or whatever. Right, stick them in some kind of g- yes. container, right? Exactly. And that's exactly what the original murder in the Orient Express was. It just happened to be brought home by a really gifted director and incredible cast. I mean, Ingrid Bergman's in that version. Uh, I think Tony Perkins is in it. I mean, it's just the, it's, you know, and, and Lumet, Lumet's directing. Um, the weird thing is, well, we're going through a period of enormous anxiety right now, right? Quite obviously. But to me, Dana, I mean, or either one of you really, I mean, it just didn't work to me as a, as a kind of, I mean, I kind of expected, well, that's the pleasure I'm going to get out of the soothed nerves. I'll walk out of here with, if nothing else, soothed nerves. But uh, I couldn't take my eyes off the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I sort of made myself get soothed nerves. Basically, it was sort of like very watered down Xanax, but I took whatever little bit of relaxation it could give me. And it did, I think, have a little bit of um, of visual wit and uh, among <laughs> among the best gags. And it was that mustache, which was sort of like Groucho's grease paint mustache. It was so proud of its own artificiality. I wish in a way that the movie had owned that campiness, that the mm. whole movie had been like that mustache. Yeah, the mustache was ludicrous. I will also say as a Christy purist that the notion of casting Kenneth Branagh, who is like the paragon of Britishness, as Hercule Poirot, who is so significantly not British in all the work, like to to a fault, the key element of his perspicacity and ability to understand everybody's motives are that he's this funny little foreign outsider. Now, if you look at it in the broader history of Agatha Christie's work, which um, does not have an unmarred record, actually, on describing people of different nationalities, and, and um, if you are not 10 and are able to read c- coded language around anti-Semitism, you might find some of it in her work in ways that are really troubling to rediscover as a grown-up. So, Perhaps what a modern adaptation of Hercule Poirot should do is throw out the Belgianness and um, not pay too much attention to the ethnic coding that Agatha Christie put into her work. That's all fine. However, there is something just ludicrous about that very British version of an mm-hmm. elaborate mustache mm-hmm. when when Hercule Poirot is supposed to be so French. I mean, Belgian, but French-Belgian with, you know, I I picture... The uh, Poirot mustaches of my youth, which are fine spun little black needles uh, twisted into ornate curlicues rather than this kind mm-hmm. of walrusy carpet of uh, architectural structure. Like it, it, <laughs> it, I love it, it I just, just have to say what Samuel Adams in his review of the movie says in Slate, which is that it looks like a, a tiny yet magnificent falcon has perched beneath his mm-hmm. nose. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that line in Sam's review. And, you know, he also pointed out that this uh, adaptation took care to give Poirot uh, a, like, long-lost dead girlfriend in a locket or something, um, in case you were wondering whether his fussy particularityness might mean anything about his romantic inclinations, uh, which I had not observed but seemed astute. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm ambivalent about this clearly, but the notion of just the, the full-on doughy slab of Brana's <laughs> British face being this persnickety euro seemed hilarious. On the other end, and his accent is ludicrous for the first 20 minutes. However, I will say, I will say, despite that being my kind of electric hair standing up response for the first half an hour of the movie. I actually think he kind of was camping it up in mustachey form for much of the film. I mean, mm-hmm. that 
<laughs> that that clip we heard where he says, "I am perhaps the best detective in the world." <laughs> it's like that's he's that man is fairly in control of his pitches. That was some intentional hoax, I think. But you know, a place where that tone goes completely off the rails, and it's just I think one scene or maybe two. But it's where he it's where Kenneth Branagh tries to turn himself and Hercule Poirot into into action. Mm-hmm. heroes, right? There's a scene where he and Leslie Odom Jr. have this face-off, <laughs> one with a gun and one with a cane. <laughs> it's just so not belonging in the world of that movie and seems like a really ridiculous swerve into some attempted, I don't know, thriller making that just does not come off. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I, just, I could just keep thinking, does your dog bite? I mean, it just is so Clouseau in a way. I mean, that's the problem, really, is that for the Xanax to work, you sort of have to lose yourself in the in the universe in this cozy way. But to do a kind of that much star stuffing vehicle, it just this like your iron your powers of ironizing and distance kick in, so you're never inside you're never inside that world, right? Which is what would make it deliver the. Um, uh, you know the the comfort that it, I think those books were designed for, and right, and, and it's like a game of Clue, but a yeah. game of Clue would be more involving. You know, this is sort of like you want to turn over the board halfway through. Yeah, absolutely. I okay. will say though, I think it's the underlying work. Like I think Murder on the Orient Express has these structural flaws buried within it. There's too many, there's too many motives to follow, and it it never quite delivers the satisfaction, even in the original text that some of Agatha Christie's work can deliver. So I will put myself down, I anticipate you being about to ask us whether we recommend it, as saying, for this movie, maybe watch it on somebody's screen next to you on an airplane at some point with the sound off. But <laughs> if, if in fact, the final line is is borne out and this movie makes enough dosh that Kenneth Branagh gets to make murder, or Death on the Nile, I would go see that movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I suspect yeah. I won't be successful in getting you guys to go see it for the purposes of this show, but I I would be interested to see Brana try his hand at one of her sturdier plots and see mm-hmm. what came of it. Ju- Julia, you nailed it. This is an airplane movie. That's exactly what it is. But you completely uh, uh, missed the target on the second assertion. I will go see Death on the Nile. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Victory. Yeah. Victoire. Uh, Victoire, exactly. All right. Well, uh, this is uh, Murder on the Orient Express, starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> Branagh. Um, uh, tell us if you saw it, tell us what you thought of it. But some of you have to be Agatha Christie fans. So did we um, do her injustice? Let us know. Okay. Well, also, we need you to go on the Facebook page because Steve and I had a battle when we were discussing whether to discuss this movie about what percentage of Slate Culture Gab Fest listeners uh, felt that Agatha Christie was a significant cultural phenomenon. I forget what our actual bar was, but for whom was she more than a blip oh, on I cultural said, radar? I remember vividly. I said less than 10% of our audience has yes, any and I said I thought more than 85%. <laughs> That's a <laughs> That's pretty a big significant <laughs> cultural figure. That is a big bid ask right there. So slim. You could drive a train through it. Yes. All right. Well, all right. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest to, to settle, settle the feud. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, Julia, we surely we have some business to attend to. What do you got? This week on Slate Plus, we are going to give you 
rosy-fingered excellence. We are interviewing Emily Wilson, the wonderful new translator of the wonderful new edition of The Odyssey. I think a favorite text for all three of us. Uh, and we got so excited asking her questions that we went long. So uh, in particular, we asked her about her approach to the famous epithets in The Odyssey, uh, rosy-fingered dawn, wine-dark seas, gray-eyed Athena, et cetera, et cetera. Um, she does something very different in this translation with them, and she talks to us about what that is and why and how she approached it uh, and also elaborates on a few other important questions like why everyone should read The Odyssey. So for uh, bonus cuts from our wonderful conversation with Emily Wilson, stay on after the show for our extra segment. If you are a Plus member and if you are not, sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. You can get access to an ad-free version of our show with special bonus segments and support the work that Slate does. All right, Steve, next topic. I think it's fair to say Louis C.K. was the reigning king of American comedy. I'm certainly one of them. Uh, Really without rival for the past half dozen years or so, having risen to the top of stand-up and the sitcom form, expanding the territory, creative territory of each. But a rumor had followed him around during that time that he would expose and pleasure himself in front of women. Uh, this rumor has now been confirmed by both Louis C.K. And, uh, and some of his victims. We're joined now by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, to talk about uh, Louis C.K., the confirmation of these rumors and and uh, what this means for his uh, legacy and reputation. Willa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Willa, you've written brilliantly and perceptively about his uh, comedy and his uh, TV show, um, and you've now written uh, about this really quite disturbing uh, episode. Tell us a little bit about where where you um, how you thought through this uh, very creepy, maximally creepy set of um, circumstances. It's interesting, or, or in fact, maybe it's totally banal, but uh, like Louis C.K. has been making work about his predilections or his um, his perversion for years, I think. I mean, it's not like the subtext of his show, once you know what he does. It is sort of the text of his show and it's the text of his work. So, um, you know, finding out that these rumors are true, and, and I think maybe we should probably circle back to how much we let ourselves not think too deeply about those rumors because it it isn't a shock like it, it we sort of had some um, hints about it obviously you know there's entire episodes in which he's defending masturbation there's all these sort of yes means no does no mean yes episode I mean instances and like I was just looking back at an old episode of his and there's an instant where he's hitting on all of these um, waitresses at a bar and one of them pulls him aside and says um, don't do that like you have to stop hitting on everyone. Nobody wants to have to say no all the mm-hmm. time. It's just like things that were sort of funny or sort of interesting or both. Um, not that Louis, the show was always particularly funny. Um, it's just it's just everywhere. And I don't actually think that that makes the show bad, but it really does make it very different. And it makes how I think um, people approach it is going to have to change. I mean, it's changed sort of automatically and it's going to take a long time to sort of figure out what it what it actually is. Let's back up just for one second. What let let's let's like sort of throw your mind back to before you knew that these were true had been confirmed mm-hmm. as true. When you were watching the show or listening to the stand up, was it that you thought half consciously maybe that in working these things out so acutely and so smartly and so self consciously in the art that perhaps he had therapeutically worked through them in his own life or wasn't condemned to repeating, you know, pathological and abusive behaviors in his own life. In fact, you know, this is evidence that he's a healthy human being because he's 
you know, he's coping dead on in the context of his art with the uh, brutalities and the contradictions of being uh, a, a man and a powerful man. Therefore, maybe we can assume safely in his personal life he's not this person. Well, well, I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I mean, I think that in in light of what's the allegations, there was sort of there's some tweets going around like, I cannot believe he made this movie. I love you, daddy, which is so exactly about these themes. Like it's so um, these sort of not just the audacity, but the impunity of something like that. And and there is something to that of thinking you can never going to get caught and you can talk about all these things so openly. But I think also like he obviously is working this stuff out. I, I, I don't think that he's proud of himself. You know, I, obviously this is like, uh, something that is on his mind, and I don't actually know that it's on his mind always in the most, like at the front. I don't know if he always knows what he's up to. You know, people are complicated. We can compartmentalize. We can think we're making something about this, and really we're making it about that. I think that all of that stuff is going on in his work, but that doesn't mean that because he was sort of struggling with it that he just gets a pass, mm-hmm. or that or that the work as a whole didn't. And I wrote this in the piece that I wrote about him, sort of like burnish his reputation as as our sort of most, um, you know, artistically intelligent commenter on what it is to be stuck in a man, a male body and and sort of have all these gross impulses and Mm -hmm. know they're gross, but also have them at the same time. I mean, he did do his work is all about that, but it is also now about that in a much more sort of. Um, profane and perverse way than it was before. It's like he isn't better than the character. In no. fact, he's much worse than the character. Right. So, Dana, you actually went and saw the movie uh, that he, uh, Louis C.K. made um, uh, after finding out about the revelations. And also, I believe after it had been pulled from release, you knew you were reviewing something that was essentially not going to be distributed, at least according to normal protocol, and then wrote about it, I think, quite beautifully in your review. You went through the process of mourning on the page in a way for the Louis C.K. that you do admire in order to come to grips with the one that you can't admire. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it was sort of like a, a race against the news trying to write on this movie, I Love You, Daddy, because it was supposed to open this week, actually, this Friday, and it was on my schedule to see it and review it this week. And then, of course, when this story broke on Thursday, it became more uh, – it became clearer that I would have to see it quickly if I was going to see it. I believe the order of events was that uh, – the the movie's premiere was canceled. So you started to see that there was some sort of cloud hanging over it. And you knew that the story was going to break soon. Then a few hours, probably after that, the story broke. Um, and and then I was just racing to get a copy of the movie that I could even see because I started to have a feeling that this movie's release might be pulled, which in fact happened the next morning. So yeah, I felt like I was already kind of autopsying a patient on a table by the time I saw the movie. And there's no way to know how the movie might have struck me beforehand. But have you seen it, Willa? I haven't. I mean, it, it is whether or not you knew about these allegations, the movie has some really overtly the, the creepiness is right there on the surface, as Willow was saying about his show. But it's much less funny and less artistically successful than his show. And I think what it probably would have struck me as before hearing anything about Louis C.K. would would be a, a kind of examination of the Woody Allen story. I mean, there's a character, John Malkovich's character, that's a clear proxy for Woody Allen, who's kind of lusting after the Louis C.K. character's 17-year-old daughter. And a big part of the movie is kind of asking, how do you separate the art from the artist, right? And it seems to me that both Louis C.K. and Woody Allen would stand as uh, as prime examples of how that question has to be asked in a completely different way. I mean, mm-hmm. you really can't separate the art from the artist in their work, and not just because, you know, there's a big tabloid sort of wave against them, but because, as as Willa says, those questions are right there being worked out. You can't go back and watch Manhattan now and know what it was to, to see it in 
the 1980s when it came out, right? It's, it's, it's a completely different atmosphere and different world. It's interesting what you said, Willa, that we knew ahead of time. And so it's not as surprising in some way. I think somehow that's true. But on the other hand, I do find myself more shocked by this set of revelations than some of the other ones because of the way in which Louis C.K.'s has presented himself. Like he, most of the other monsters we've learned about in the last few weeks seem like people who are not particularly introspective, not particularly emotionally astute, not particularly acute in their understanding of human behavior, human interaction, and what, how gender informs all of our decisions and actions. And in some ways, it's even more monstrous and dismaying to think that Louis C.K. could be so smart about all of those things and still have done all the things that he has done. Like, I think people have talked about how it's disappointing because he's a comedian who many people respect. But to me, that's what's dismaying about it because it makes you, I don't know, it opens like a a new floor below the floor of what humans are capable of. Mm -hmm. It's like one thing for... Harvey Weinstein, who seems like an obvious narcissist monster who has no comprehension of anyone's emotions other than his own to be monstrous. It feels like a much deeper violation to me for someone who does demonstrate some consciousness of how we all exist in our... This is complicated because this is like, it's easier to think that only someone who's like subhuman would be so despicable as these people have been. But that's clearly not the case. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is like this is is an avatar of like he is an embodiment of like of just evil. He's this disgusting, rapacious person who didn't even really like make anything. I mean, obviously, we know that he was involved in all these movies, but it's it's not in it's not in a one to one relationship. And so it's very easy. And it to imagine him as just only the sucking void of disgustingness. Mm. But obviously this behavior happens on a spectrum and it happens way too much from people that actually seem normal. And, and I mean, some of that's not just seem normal, but are normal and, and exist in workplaces and behave most of the time. Um, and that's the reality. And so, yes, like Louis C.K. <laughs> is probably um, very astute about a lot of things and is actually probably has a lot of insight into people's feelings and emotions. And that did probably help him pull this off for so long. And it probably um, was also part of, you know, whatever's going on with him. But that is like that is a it's not like he's not those things, mm-hmm. as you say, but I don't it, it just it it and it may make it worse, except I think it only just makes it more clear that this actually is what's going on almost all the time. That, right. Right. There was also something specifically grotesque about the Louis C.K. revelations, which is that here's a person who used his powers of we could call it introspection or faux introspection and self-sensitivity to create a a comedic persona and repertoire. They got him power in the showbiz world and the world that then allowed him to abuse that powers in ways that are so grossly insensitive to the reality of other human beings. And I I mean, the thing that comes home to me when I first heard about this, both as a rumor and then when it was confirmed, is like the nature of the crime is so bizarre in a way. I mean, it's obviously it requires treatment to say the least, right? It's like a sickness to, you know, feel the urge to masturbate in front of women without permission. But it's it's so intrinsically shameful to do that, right? Like there's an enormous amount of shame that attaches to the act to begin with among men to a degree. But it's also it's it's 
it's like three things at once. It's like committing a crime, it's getting caught for the crime, and it's being ash- deeply ashamed for the crime all in the same moment. And then performing that crime again in your work. Publicly in your work, right? Which then only augments your power and your reputation so you can go and commit the crime with impunity. And that's the important part, right? It's like there's one kind of introspection, which I do think is a fake kind of introspection, which is burying your own gaze ever deeper into yourself in order to figure out why and how you are damaged. But there's another kind of real introspection, which is when you begin to ask how that externalizes itself and begins to damage other people. And doing the first beautifully and publicly and artistically became an excuse, apparently, for this person to never do the second, because he, you know he didn't seem to he didn't seem to understand that this was. Well, this is the one thing about this apologies in him is like he did apologize to these women privately. I mean, obviously, yeah. it doesn't mean very much to to say I'm sorry for this thing and then deny it publicly and to continue on with your life and have no consequences while they are, you know blackballed from the industry or like feel like they can't participate in this industry that's so grotesque but it's not like he you know he i feel sometimes when i'm thinking about this like i can i start slipping into thinking a lot about like the psychology of a person like this and that is maybe not where i really want to be like thinking about how you end up being like it's putting too much attention onto Mm -hmm. louis ck yeah i totally agree um but there is something that seems very screwed like his public private stuff is extremely messed up obviously not only in the act of masturbating when he in front of people that he has in totally inappropriate situations but that's sort of what it is to be a stand-up comic to do to be inappropriate in public situations and this is this other thing where he denied these allegations in public to everyone to friends i think to anyone who asked him about it but obviously he knew something about it was so messed up that he did reach out to these women in some certain way but he could like he knew something was wrong, but he didn't actually want to have the responsibility of it being wrong. Like, like all this stuff is just seems very – it actually seems very confused to me on his hat, which which is only to say when you're thinking about situations like this, it's very clarifying to imagine that, like, he knew exactly what he was doing when I think it seems pretty clear – he knew exactly what he was doing, but he also didn't know exactly what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, I think it was a compulsion. Performing the whole thing was a compulsion, which is not an excuse. But I think that it was less, for example, than Weinstein, um, a deliberate scheme that was aided and abetted by all kinds of employees. It seems more like it was this kind of lone wolf compulsion. Totally. Although then you find out that, you know, mm-hmm. Dave Becky, Louis' manager, was asking these women not to tell this story. And you start to wonder, like, well, did he was it know how private you know i mean and also when you watch louis there's like um in this episode uh, pamela part 1 where he, it's sort of um been written about a bunch because it's um a scene where he sort of corners pamela adlon in a in the corner of a doorway and tries to kiss her and um and she says like you're so stupid you can't even rape well and it's like sort of like a rape scene but it sort of ends without him actually raping her and um you know it, maybe she actually is romantically interested in him but that scene begins when she's on his couch and he walks in and she says, don't ma- I'm not I'm awake. Don't start masturbating yet. And it's just like when you see something like that, you're just like, OK, so how much was this just like a thing you all were talking about all the time? And maybe you didn't know it was a real thing and you were just giving him shit about it in a comedian way. But it doesn't feel like this is a secret in this. This feels like this is something that is in the air for even for you. Mm. All right. Well, um, uh, this is one of those subjects which uh, we can only do so much justice to in the course of a single segment. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and tell us what you thought about it. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, we'll be revisiting a version of this topic, I'm sure, in coming weeks and months. Hopefully not, but probably so. 
Willa, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a total delight. Thanks. Yeah, I'd also uh, tell our listeners to to be sure to go and read what both Willa and Dana wrote about Louis C.K.'s work in the wake of the revelations. You guys were um, so quick and smart and sure-footed on such a complicated and murky topic, and I learned a lot reading what you both wrote. Oh, thank you, Julia. The Odyssey pervades the English-speaking world's literary mind from Shakespeare to James Joyce to, yes, it's true, Steely Dan. I had to throw that in there. And yet in its long career in English, in the English language, it has never before been translated by a woman. The British classicist and UPenn professor Emily Wilson has done just that. And she joins us now to discuss a book, Emily, that is being described as a triumph. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for your hospitality, a theme which I guess is very important for the Odyssey. Thank you. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, I, for those who haven't read it or haven't read it recently, it, uh, the Odyssey um, tells the story of the 10-year return home from the Trojan War of Odysseus to his own kingdom, to his wife Penelope, his son Telemachus, and of course his dog, which always struck me as the most uh, affecting part of the epic, but uh, that's just me. Now, I know that you've been asked to talk about the opening passage over and over and over again, so we'll do something slightly different. Why don't you pick a passage uh, from uh, the body of the text that was maybe beautiful in the original, maybe something of a challenge or an interesting challenge to translate, and we'll read that and then we'll discuss. Absolutely. So I guess I'm going to choose the passage at this early on in book five, where the god Hermes has been sent as the ambassador to um, sort of rescue Odysseus from the goddess Calypso, who's holding him captive in her cave. So I'm going to read from when Hermes makes this beautiful journey over over the sea to, to come to this distant island, and then the description of Calypso, the goddess of hiding, her cave, which is all about intricate forms of concealment. So Hermes heard these words. At once he fastened on his feet the sandals of everlasting gold, with which he flies on breath of air across the sea and land. He sees the wand he uses to enchant men's eyes to sleep or wake as he desires, and flew. The god flashed bright in all his power. He touched Pyaria, then from the sky he plunged into the sea and swooped between the waves, just like a seagull catching fish, wetting its whirring wings in tireless brine. So Hermes scudded through the surging swell, then finally he reached the distant island, stepped from the indigo water to the shore and reached the cavern where the goddess lived. There sat Calypso with her braided curls. Beside the hearth a mighty fire was burning. The scent of citrus and of brittle pine suffused the island. Inside she was singing and weaving with a shuttle made of gold. Her voice was beautiful. Around the cave a luscious forest flourished, alder, poplar, and scented cypress. It was full of wings. Birds nested there, but hunted out at sea, the owls, the hawks, the gulls with gaping beaks. A ripe and luscious vine, hung thick with grapes, was stretched to coil around her cave. Four springs spurted with sparkling water as they laced with criss-cross currents intertwined together. The meadows softly bloomed with celery and violets. He gazed around in wonder and joy, at sights to please even a god, even the deathless god who once killed Argos, stood still, his heart amazed at all he saw. You know, Emily, one thing that, that comes out really in the way that you, you read from the poem, and I heard you read from it here in other parts at a, at a reading in New York the other night, 
is the the iambic pentameter that you use, which is this very conversational meter, and you use it so conversationally and employ such vernacular language choices a lot of the time that, that mm-hmm. the meter sneaks up on you. You sort of don't realize, right? I mean, iambic pentameter is a very easy-to-speak meter, as we know from Shakespeare. It's sort of the rhythm of a lot of spoken English sentences anyway. But I wanted to hear about how you settled on um, that that rhythmic, that metric choice. And uh, and also, this is maybe a broader question that you can you can either answer, address beforehand or after, but did you read a lot of other translations in prepping this translation, or did you decide to try to just plunge straight in with the text and not think too much about the many, many translations of the Odyssey the that have come before? Yes. That, those are good, and those are different questions, but they're in a way related questions. So when I was first asked to do this, I, you know, I obviously I hesitated because there are lots of translations of the Odyssey out there already. Why do yet another one, um, even if I am a woman? Which you know is a, is a special thing, but it's not it doesn't in itself guarantee that it's going to be um, worth doing. Um, so I, I I did look at a whole bunch of the highest selling translations. And one thing that frustrates me about the normal way, I mean, the the conventional ways that um, classical verse in general is translated um, in sort of contemporary American culture is that it's usually done non-metrically. There's usually no um, regular pattern to the verse, even though the original is so utterly regular. It's in dactylic hexameter, not in iambic pentameter, but it's always regular. It's not like some lines have six beats and some lines have seven beats just because you feel like it. Um, So I wanted to have a regular music, but also have what I I hear as a kind of naturalness and easiness about Homeric style, that in fact, Homeric Greek is not at all difficult Greek. Syntactically, it's not complicated. You You can read it after studying Greek for two years, whereas an author like Thucydides is going to take you a lot longer. Um, so I wanted it to both to be regular metrically and have a kind of naturalness, even though it also, of course, has to have stylistic range and be able to go to sort of heights and depths and you know go in different places um, in terms of the, the register and in also in terms of how different characters speak and how different characters are sort of focalized and characterized. Yeah, Emily, I'm, I'm uh, intrigued by your comment about recognizing that being the uh, first woman to translate the Odyssey doesn't necessarily indicate anything particular about the result. Um, mm-hmm. As I feel the same way about being a woman editor of a magazine. But I, there are so many fascinating female characters in the Odyssey uh, whose rendering might actually uh, mm-hmm. be distinct or different you know, yep. whether Circe or Calypso or Penelope, mm-hmm. I, I'd love to hear you talk about uh, a female character who perhaps the act of translation led you to see in a different way or a different light as you were engaging that closely with the text. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I think it doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, one can be a woman and not necessarily sort of read and translate or work with a whole lot of gender awareness. But I, I definitely, I personally do want to, to translate and to read and to study this text with as much gender awareness as I can bring to it. Um, and I guess the, I'm just think, hesitating because there are so many wonderful female characters in this text. It's hard, hard to pick just one that I, I feel like um, the characterization matters. I mean, clearly the characterization of Penelope is what everybody always seizes on. And I, and I think the, I, I read her and I, I think also then translate her as, um, as very, very, um, marked, very, very much marked with pain and very, very much constrained by her particular social positions. I think I did interesting and um, somewhat different things, both with the 
the marvellous moments when we do get insight into her interiority, which is when her, in her accounts of her dreams, that we have a sense of her capacity to go elsewhere imaginatively and to think otherwise um, in terms of how you know, she has that great dream about the geese and the eagle killing, killing her geese. And she, in the dream, she says she cries when the eagle kills her geese. And in, it's then also interpreted as that means Odysseus is going to come and kill the suitors. And I think it's a wonderful moment where we have a sense that maybe Penelope doesn't even want her husband to come back. And I think that's sort of visible in my translation that there's this complexity about what does she even want, which I think is somewhat erased. I and mean, I think there's a tendency um, for translators to want to make the original text as simple as possible and to try and iron out whatever things point in surprising directions. And so I think I'm sort of trying not to do that quite as much and, and therefore not to try and suggest the only voice that matters, the only perspective that matters is Odysseus's perspective. And then once you're open to maybe Penelope is actually in some ways quite unhappy in her marriage, then I think you, you get to a, a more interesting kind of story and a more interesting interaction between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, I guess I could also point to the, the non-human and also the non-elite female characters. I, mean, I think it's great that... This poem is not like Smurf Village, where there's only one way to be female. You know, it's a poem which has all these enormous range of different possibilities for female identity. Including monstrous, right? I mean, almost every monster is female, with the exception of the Cyclops. Almost every sort of creature that he encounters on his return home is female. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's this whole fear of the female who's going to enclose or or devour or drink up the male hero. In a way, it's sort of too obvious in Freudian ways, but it's also done in these fascinatingly diverse ways. There's both Circe who transforms the the male visitor, and and it's also this whole trope of the female hosts, females aren't, aren't supposed to be hosts. When they, when they try to be hosts, they're going to get the norms of hospitality wrong. And then rather than providing food, they eat, eat the guests. Rather than providing drink, they drink the guests, like the, the whirlpool Charybdis. Rather than providing music, they provide the music of the sirens, which is too good and it makes you want to keep listening forever and ever. Hmm. Emily, can you talk a little bit about Odysseus himself, you know, mm-hmm. who's such... A strangely, and, and I hate to put it this way because it's it, it's such a chauvinism of the present in a way. But there's something very modern about uh, Odysseus as a hero, and that he's an equivocal and ambivalent and tricky figure through and through. He's not in any sense a a, a single layered uh, heroic figure. Um, which to me, when I first encountered this poem, you know, as an undergraduate, was the most surprising, if not almost shocking thing about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he's actually always been read as very modern. I mean, I think even in fifth century Greece, he was read mm-hmm. as almost too modern and he's too much like the sophists who are coming with their new educational mm-hmm. ideas and he's too tricksy. And the whole idea of having an epic character whose primary superhero quality is flexibility and ability to adapt to any situation makes him very unusual compared to Achilles or Ajax, where they have, have a single thing that's applied to them, that Achilles is always going to be the best warrior, the swift-footed one, whereas Odysseus has all these epithets applied to him which are all about multiplicity. Um, so I think he's, sort of, he's, he's presented, it's the story of somebody who's, whose capacity is to adapt to circumstances. And the poem itself is sort of engaged with how does one adapt to circumstances and is that a good thing, to be constantly able to be in a new environment and disguise oneself and be something different to different people. And are we always so sure that he wants to return home? 
Oh no, I think that's the. I mean, the people people I think tend to assume that they know why he why does he leave Calypso and go back to Penelope. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a hallmark version of that, which is it's true love and it's so <laughs> sweet, you know. And I think that's kind of bogus. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the text which says that, and I think it's a very un- implausible reading. I mean, the way I read it is more that he's um, he's both very very different from Achilles in the Iliad, in that he's much less sort of. Um, he's characterized by this flexibility and circuitousness in terms of the kind of plot that he's involved in as well as the kind of character he is. But he's also, he is a Homeric hero. He is a warrior and he cares about male honor. And if you're in, hidden in the cave with a super powerful, super beautiful immortal goddess, you don't get a whole lot of male honor. You get to be invisible and then be immortal. And so I think actually his, the, the choice of Odysseus is very much like the choice of Achilles. It's the choice to get male honor, even if that means dying. Because he, if he goes back to Ithaca, he gets to be important. Whereas if he stays with Calypso, not so much. Right. She's calling the shots if he stays with her, right? Right. Yes. Forever. Mm. All right. Wonderful. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the Odyssey. What a remarkable uh, achievement this translation is. Thank you so much. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Den. What do you have? Steve, I shall endorse something that it sounds really depressing and horrible when I first tell the story, but it was actually something that gave me lots of hope and courage over the weekend. And we all need hope and courage. So if you follow me on Twitter, you may have heard me ranting about this over the weekend. But Judith Butler, the professor of rhetoric at at UC Berkeley, who was my, I wouldn't call her mentor because I didn't know her that well, but she was my thesis advisor. And I went to her thesis seminar and studied with her a little bit. One of the best teachers I've ever had, maybe the second best teacher I've ever had. And that's saying a lot because I've studied with some amazing people. Anyway, Judith Butler went to Brazil a couple of weeks ago to um, to organize a conference in Sao Paulo. I don't think she was even speaking at it. She was just sort of one of the the people who had put it together. And uh, and she was protested by a small crowd of people, about 70 people outside the building she was going into. I think she was also accosted at the airport, possibly with her partner. Anyway, it was a very upsetting story to read about anyone you know and admire that there were these um, hard right protesters standing there screaming, burn the witch, and essentially sort of protesting, I guess, what they vaguely comprehend to be her messing with our understanding of gender, right? Which it is true that our understanding of gender has been greatly affected by Judith Butler's writing. But anyway, these people had sort of congealed that into this kind of I don't know, just this this hatred for the lesbian witch amongst them. And they were literally screaming, burn the witch. And I think they burned her in effigy. It was very upsetting to read about. And uh, and in the process of reading this and researching it, both in Brazilian and American newspapers, I came across a clip of her talking about it at this conference, um, just sitting in an office with someone essentially being interviewed for six minutes in English. And uh, she doesn't really address the, the protests so directly, but she just essentially talks about what's happening to the world <laughs> right now and and why the right feels so empowered now to make these very barbaric displays. And if you think of Judith Butler or kind of academic theorists in general as people who are always obfuscating and talking about things in very difficult and deliberate, deliberately hard to understand ways, I really recommend watching this six-minute clip. It could not be more simple and plain the way she explains herself. And uh, and yet it's incredibly clarifying, not just about what happened to her in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but to sort of what's happening to the world right now in this sense that we have, that we're dividing into these very frightening camps. And, uh, and at the very end of the six minutes, if you sort of sit through, you know, the painful deconstruction that she makes of of gender politics around the world, 
um, there's just this beautiful moment of hope <laughs> where she essentially says, we're going to win. And here's why. And here's why, you know, these 70 people on the sidewalk really mean nothing to me and they should mean nothing to the world. Mm. And uh, and by the end of it, I was just I was just weeping. I just felt so lucky to have studied with her. And she's incredibly inspiring. And uh, if you want to get just a little dose of what makes Judith Butler so wonderful, watch this little six minute clip. We'll we'll link to it on the show page. Oh, fantastic. Um, Julia, what do you have? That sounds amazing, Dana. Um, my endorsement for the week is Agatha Christie related extremely tangentially. It is episode 15 of season five of 30 Rock, a show perhaps our listeners know formerly run on the National Broadcasting Company. Um, the episode is called It's Never Too Late for Now. Uh, it takes place right after Liz Lemon's breakup with Carol, the airline pilot played by uh, Matt Damon. And in it, she decides to be a spinster and takes up reading Agatha Christie, uh, having joined a old lady book club. Um, and then a murder on the Orient Express like plot unfolds in the office in ways I won't divulge. Um, is it better or worse than any other hilariously funny 30 Rock episode? Uh, I don't really know. It's just a good one, but uh, it was funny to watch it. Uh, shortly on the heels of watching Murder on the Orient Express, the recent adaptation. So it's never too late for now. Very funny Agatha Christie-themed episode of 30 Rock. Mm. All right. Well, this uh, this past uh, Friday, I went to go see Lydia Lovelace play in um, Hudson. She was tremendous. I know I've talked about her in the past on the show. Well, here I am. I'm talking about her again. She's really a great songwriter, and it turns out a wonderful live performer. She's still on tour. She may be coming to a venue near you, make an effort to go see her, but certainly seek out her music. She's just a, I think, just sort of grossly underrated uh, songwriter and singer, and she's she's wonderful. If you like Nico Case or listen to Williams, she's sort of in that genre, but whatever. Um, just check it out. She's really great. And then, um, and then um, Julia, both as a boss and as a parent, I thought you would know not to get into a fruitless battle of wills with a child. <laughs> Uh, where's this going, Steve? <laughs> but you still you still don't want to ask me what the secret jewel of an endorsement is up in <laughs> Columbia County? You, no, you I've still... succeeded in this battle completely. I had totally forgotten about that. I you don't still... care at all. But you're welcome to share it with the group if you like, Steve. Fake it until you make it, Julia. You didn't forget about it. You've been sitting there with it burning <laughs> in your conscience, and you... I am doing you a favor by bringing it back up. I just want you to say the words. That's all. <laughs> I hadn't crossed my mind once. <laughs> <laughs> Think about, I mean, we're talking now, it could be, I mean, how how many hundreds of thousands of people are now being deprived of something kind of beautiful and unique? It's uh, whatever, That's whatever. That's clearly on you, Steve. Up to you to disclose it whenever you're ready. You're the executor who would have thrown the collected works of Franz Kafka into the fire. You would have been like, oh, can I stoke that for you? Can I... All right. Well, fine. We can move on. All right. Then I'll quickly endorse uh, the Gillian Welch and David Rawlings cover of Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, which you can find on YouTube. It's fantastic. Dana, thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of that wonderful network. There's an entire roster of 
really great shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.